Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, and now the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN Radio, Doug Glanville. So, Doug, it's April, man. You know what that means. Time to get your freaking taxes done is what it means. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm looking at the pile right there. <laughs> right? Uh. Uh, but the other thing it means, obviously, is it's baseball season. Uh, after all those weeks in lockout limbo, I am grateful. We're going to have a season, and it will be a full season. A few weeks ago, we weren't too sure of that. So, I'm ready. What about you, Doug? What does the dawn of opening day mean to you, and especially this opening day? Oh, I have so many great memories. And just to think, you know, I was in Montreal one year, and they did a Survivor recreation. Um, I have to bring that up every year. <laughs> yeah, you do. Where they had the, the lamps and the tiki torches. They'd snuff out every time we tried to go to our position. Really love that. I, you know, I just never will forget that opening day or the fanatic coming in, you know, whatever parachute. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, it's this is it. And of course, we were a little nervous about opening day not even happening. Uh, it was a little scary time with the lockout. But yeah, I, this is this is it. This is what makes sense when you smell the leaves, the weather, the flowers, and you're like, yes, it's time for baseball. And I got through some spring training last week, so, you know, I'm ready to go here. Ready to go. Yeah. Well, you know what else the dawn of opening day means to us here at Starkville? It means Theo Day. <laughs> Just as he did last year, Theo Epstein will join us to lead us into a new season. Uh, baseball's on the verge of significant changes, so I can't think of anybody better than Theo to walk us through some of those changes and give us some incredible insight into where baseball is going and and why it matters. But first, Doug, don't we need to set the stage for this season? Yeah, we do. So uh, why don't we run through a few quick predictions so we can demonstrate to the world how little we actually know about what's about to happen over the next six, seven months. That sounds beautiful. I'm, well, look, I, I, yeah, I mean, we... 
Well, since we are not quite psychic, otherwise we would get all of our trivia questions correct, um, we will leave it to those that are in charge to help guide us on where we're going this year. Uh, we will? Okay, we will. Uh, let's start with a prediction guaranteed to go wrong, namely, who's going to win the World Series? And I mentioned this in the past. For years, on opening day, I wrote a column predicting who was going to win and I don't want to run through my exact success rate with these picks, but let me say two things. One, that rate was not zero. Was not. I did somehow pick the 2004 Red Sox. That was good. Good. If you're going to get one, that's a good one to get. Uh, but two, you should also know that if I had actually placed significant wagers on those picks, I'm pretty sure I'd be in Chapter 11 right now. So. Can we agree that the prediction business is a really bad business to be in? Yeah, it's unless you're betting to lose, then I then it's probably very successful. Yeah. Yes. All right, so we got that out of the way. Uh, time to predict who will win the World Series. Doug, I'm going to let you go first. I'm going to be very boring. And note that I will change this every time I have another prediction show. Uh, so if you see me on ESPN.com, it might have a different answer. That's how I hedge all my bets. <laughs> so I'm going to say the Los Angeles Dodgers, and, and I'm just going to give all credit to Freddie Freeman just being the difference maker. Obviously, they're loaded and they have all kinds of depth, but you know they're going to get hurt, Someone, you know, things like that. So I'll just keep it simple. Do I need to explain it? They have, they have like both sides of the ball. They have a deep pitching staff. Their offense is ridiculous. They added an MVP and a world champion. And they're very upset about last year. So I'm going to just throw that all at you and say Jackie Robinson, 75th. It's it's like kind of destiny right now. Yeah. Dodgers. Way to go out in a limb. Dodgers. Yeah, that was, that was really one. risky. That was yeah, very risky. Well, this is why we have you here, to give us these daring picks. Um, all right, here's mine. Uh, I'm going to predict that the Toronto Blue Jays will win the World Series. Um do you know that no AL East team not named the Yankees or Red Sox has won the World Series in almost 30 years since the 92-93 Blue Jays did that? And I saw a lot of the Blue Jays this spring. I think it's about to change, that stat I just gave, because I don't see a hole on that team. I love the lineup. I, I you know, Vlad, Vlad Guerrero Jr., could I, I honestly think if this is possible, he could have an even bigger year this season than last. I saw him one day in BP and Clearwater. Uh, Doug, you know how there's the, the outfield fence in right field, and then there's the berm, and then there's yeah. a little walkway, and then walkway. there's a second fence? I saw US him, 19. <laughs> right. I saw him hit a ball over the second fence before the highway to right field, and he's right handed he is locked in man it's scary um but also um matt chapman changes the defensive look of that team george springer is healthy best lineup in the league pitching staff so underrated uh, especially the bullpen i feel like jordan romano is the best closer nobody ever talks about uh love the depth love the variety of different looks in that pen um Rotation could be just as good if if Kevin Gosman and you say Kakuchi do what I think they're gonna do. So that's my pick there, Glanville, the Blue Jays. A little more daring than your pick. Yeah. 
That's right. It's a good pick, though. I like it. The Blue Jays. We had we had Charlie Montoya on last year, and you know, it couldn't happen to a better man if he he can pull this yeah. off. Yeah, Charlie was a big fan of his appearance on Starkville. He's 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 the one. <laughs> uh, all right, now here's the second thing we're going to pick. I want you to give me a dark horse, Doug. Uh, I want you to give me a team that was not in the playoffs last year that you think will make the playoffs this year. I have to go Seattle Mariners. Uh, this is a team, I had a chance to see them this spring, and they had a pretty formidable lineup, and they were missing you know, guys like Kyle Lewis, and they were missing Frazier and all these guys. I'm like, wait a minute, they're still missing three of their starters, and their lineup is, is really balanced. It's got a lot of pop. There's some youth in there, excitement. And I just think they're going to have a, a great season. They were, what, a game out last year? So they were already right there. And then you add another team. And then you have guys like, you know, Winker getting brought in. You, Eugenio Suarez. I know he hasn't hit much for average, but he's going to hit himself 30. Hanniger. I mean, they just have a lot of bats in there. They're pretty well balanced. And, you know, and they'll pitch. They'll pitch. So that's what I'm saying that I think they'll get in there after falling short last season. Yeah, added Robbie Ray, Julio Rodriguez makes the team. Really yeah. exciting guy. Superstar, uh, yeah. Okay, I, I, I'm going to go same division, different team. Uh, I'm going to go Angels because we need Mike Trout and Shohei Otani playing baseball in October. Doug, um, Angels pitching still makes me nervous, but what a lineup. What star power. Uh, I think if you give that team a full season of health from – Trout, Anthony Rendon, Noah Syndergaard, who was incredible this spring. Uh, you put them in a world of 12 playoff teams. Why can't that team be one of those teams? So now, one more. One more, Doug. I want you to fill in the blank. Don't be shocked if blank. If the Minnesota Twins win the American League Central. Don't be shocked if the Twins win the Central. Yes. I'm I'm very excited about this lineup. First of all, I thought they completely underperformed last season. Rocco Baldelli, exciting manager, still a young guy. Uh, I just thought they were just off. But you could see the potential. So they were way down where they should have been. Now you add a Carlos Correa. Now you secure a Buxton. You have an unbelievable up the middle. Gary Sanchez, if he's like, okay, if he's game on, that's 40 home runs from the catcher position. I mean, they're loaded. They got Polanco, who, like you said, you talk about people don't talk about. Here's a guy hitting 33 home runs last season. What? So I love up the middle. And they have some nice young arms that, you know, have great upside on the pitching side. So part of it is that they weren't as bad as they were last year. And now they've added pieces where I think they'll just kind of put it together. And, you know, White Sox, you know, they're like, everybody's written them in, but, I, you know, who knows? You know, somebody, they have, they've they had injury problems. They've had all kinds of challenges. And Kimbrel's gone and all these things. So I said, why not the Twins? They're, you know, a good team, and I think they would definitely be shocking if they did win. Okay. Minnesota Twins, Doug Glanville's don't be surprised pick. Here's mine. Don't be surprised if your Don Alvarez wins the AL MVP award. Doug, here's a trivia question for you. 
among all active players with at least 200 games played, how many would you say have a higher career OPS than Jordan Alvarez? One. Himself. <laughs> okay, it's more than one, but it, it's not much more. It's three. I bet you've heard of these guys. Mike Trout is one. Juan Soto is two. Fernando Tatis Jr. is three. And then Jordan Alvarez at 948. Uh, I think the Astros win that division again. And I'm going to predict Air Jordan hits 300 with 100 extra base hits. So just remember. Wow. Right? Just remember, you heard it here first, unless it doesn't happen, in which case, (laughs) burn this. (laughs) Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, Doug, we now have a tradition here in Starkville that I'm guessing every other baseball podcast in America has to be jealous of. How do we open every season? In some places, they have a parade. In Starkville, we invite Theo Epstein to come hang out with us. So (laughs) let's welcome him back. Theo, uh, you know, this now makes two years in a row. (laughs) You've thrown out the first pitch of the season in Starkville. Where would you say that ranks among your greatest honors? That... uh... That's right at the very top. Um, not not a lot of people can say they get invited every opening day to Starkville, so it's a good place to be. Not a lot of it. not a lot of people. There's three. There's me, Glanville, and you. Did we unveil the statue yet? The Upstein statue. I, I don't know if we did it last year, but oh, I'm I'm, op- I'm open for more, more discussion okay. on that. Uh, I don't recall seeing it, but uh, Glanville, I'm sure you have a lot of sculptors that you run into in your travels. So let's get right on this. Uh, hey, hey, Theo, baseball is changing before our eyes, and you're, you're so involved in those changes. We want to talk about all of that, but we, we should do a little update on you. You just spent your first season not running a team in almost two decades. So what was that like for you, not having your life defined by the baseball calendar? Yeah, well, on, on a personal level, um, it was it was great and a long time coming. You know, I... I been working in baseball. I started out as an intern when I was 18 years old and, you know, and then worked all three college summers in baseball. Um, got a job with the team, full-time job the day, the day after I graduated college and then, you know, became a GM at, at 28. And so, so in a lot of ways, I don't know what it's like to be an adult without living and dying with, with every single pitch, um, you know, 162 games a year. And, plus the six weeks of spring training plus hopefully a month of postseason and then the winter is your on season so it just it just gets to be a lot and you can you know not not only your um schedule um but if if you're not careful you know a bit of your identity and priorities kind of get wrapped up in 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 that all-encompassing baseball world um in the standings and results and everything like that so it just was really refreshing to to be able to get out of um get out of that cycle and 
you know, spend a lot more time with my family and my kids are at an age where you really want to savor every moment because it goes so quickly. And, and, and it was great, you know, and also as far as my relationship with baseball, I was able to really start to see the game as a fan again, which I hadn't been able to do, you know, in, in some ways since I was 17 years old, because when you're, when you're working for a team, you know, you, you see just about every event on the baseball field through the lens of, is this going to help us, score one more run, prevent one more run, win one more game, get into the playoffs, get us an inch closer to winning the World <laughs> Series. And, and so not being affiliated with a club, I was able to to remove that lens and and, and just view it as a fan and, and ask myself um, instead, everything I saw on the baseball field, like, well, how'd that make me feel? How fun was that? How entertaining was that? Or, or you know, sometimes... Hey, that wasn't so entertaining. That was, a little bit, you know, that all that dead times a little bit boring, all these strikeouts and everything. Like we, there's, there's probably a better way to do this. So just see, just being able to um, feel the game as a fan again was really, really rewarding. And, and you know, you just defined the three seasons of a baseball executive. There's the season, there's the postseason, and then there's <laughs> right. the on season. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So I was going to ask you, how come you haven't gotten back in to run a, a, a team? I know you're, there, there was obviously a lot of reports about you and the Mets. I think you just defined it. It might, it might have something to do with that, the season, the, the postseason, and the on season. Yeah, well, you forgot spring training, which is sort of the, the fourth season there. And then yeah. now lines are blurring, too. Like those seasons are bleeding <laughs> oh into God. each other uh, a little bit. But no, it's... Look, you know, the, the front offices are a lot bigger than, than when I first got into baseball, but the, the job responsibilities are, are, you know, way more significant. If, you know, baseball organizations just um, try to do a lot more now uh, than, than we did 20, 30 years ago. So there's a lot, a lot more people to manage, a lot more um, processes to, um, you know, to, to manage a lot more competition out there. So, you know, you're constantly pushing for the next competitive advantage and you're pushing to protect your competitive advantage <laughs> and you're wondering what everyone else is doing that you haven't figured out yet and how to catch up. And it's just a nonstop um, hamster wheel that, uh, yeah, can be, can be pretty all, all encompassing. And so I think, you know, I've always, I've always looked at, um, you know, my, my career, my work life in, in, in like 10 year segments any, anyway. And, and so I went, you know, I went right into one at the Red Sox and, and then, and then from there directly to the one with the Cubs and I'll probably, you know, I think hope I'm only, I'm 48. So hopefully there'll be another, another, you know, long run somewhere in some capacity, but I'm lucky enough to have this opportunity to, you know, pick my head up and, and reprioritize for, for a couple of years and do some things that are important to me and, and spend time with my kids. So I'm, I'm, that, that's the main reason I haven't gotten back in yet. Well, the game is lucky too, because the game has you to help craft the way it's changing. And so we want to spend most of this conversation talking about those changes in baseball. Let, let, me, let me have Doug throw out the first question on that. Oh, I think it's, I think even just on a broad sense, I, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, collective bargaining settles and, you know, there's sort of new understandings about how to overarchingly change or ad address the game in more real time, more responsiveness. Uh, so I guess what powers do you have, so to speak now to, to actually do that? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think the one, one result in the CBA, it's not, it's not more, more power per se. It's that um, the sides got together and set out 
uh, a very collaborative process, a, a new version of, of the competition committee that's going to be, you know, a joint committee with, with owner representatives and player representatives with the sole purpose of, of uh, working together um, to, you know, evaluate the rules and potential new rules um, and their, and their impacts on, on the game. And then, and then to work to, to, to uh, expedite the process uh, so that, you know, if, if there is a rule change that, that um, you know, after a, a lot of study, uh, the size determined is, is, is worthwhile for the game instead of being caught up previously in like a, a lot of uncertainty and a years long process. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, the, the potential for MLB to unilaterally implement with a one year waiting period. Now through this joint competition committee, there can, you know, the sides work together, they're at the table together, evaluating the rules, and then they can work quickly. If you get to a majority position, 45 days to, to implement. So you can take something that you learn from one season, you know, debate it um, in, in the off season and, and actually get it into play in, in the major leagues uh, the very next season. So it's great to, it's great to have a process that, that, that's a collaborative first and foremost, and, and, and the player's voice, will be heard and, and you can't have a sound rule, rule change evaluation process without the players being, you know, right in the middle of it, of course. And then not only collaborative, but also, um, you know, more efficient and, and can react more quickly when needed. And that doesn't mean anyone's going to act rashly. It doesn't mean there's going to be, you know, a race to reinvent the wheel and change dozens of things just because the, the process is a little bit more streamlined, but it means that the sides can work together. You know, now, now, now that that dialogue, that has been, you know, too infrequent in the past and too hard to get together on is now institutionalized. It's 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 made, you know, part of this this process. The sides are going to constantly be talking about how to make the game better, and that's a great thing. Yeah, just to be clear on this, this committee that you're talking about will have four active players. Am I right on the committee? So you can be talking about where the game is going with active players in the room. Yeah, that's that's the way it's been set out in, in the CBA, and and you know I think there's there's been such a, a rush to to get through spring training, finish off the off season, get through spring training, make sure you know players are healthy and 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 we can get to opening day. I don't think that the details have been hammered out yet. For example, I don't think the the players association has has yet named which players are, are going to be involved, and um, the o owner representatives have, haven't been chosen. So there's going to be there's going to be you know the, the details are are going to be worked out in, in coming weeks, I'm sure. But yeah, it's going to be, you know, the committee will meet on a regular basis with active players, with owner representatives, um, discussing the state of the game, discussing active rule experiments, discussing, you know, uh, impacts on the game, making sure we avoid unintended consequences. Research will be brought to their attention. Um, you know, they'll be looking through data. They'll be understanding the, the player's position, not only what a, what a rule change might mean for, for outcomes on the field, but how it feels to play the game that way. Um, and then, of course, everyone focusing on what does this mean for fans, ultimately, to, to try to create the, the very best version of baseball for our fans? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up fans because I, I think I asked you this last year, too, but uh, it's worth asking again because I'm sure you run into this. Every time that I write about rule changes or talk about rule changes or tweet about rule changes, I get bombarded 
by people who say, leave the freaking game alone. So yeah. can you explain to those people why the game is going to change and why it needs to change? Yeah, I think I think it's it's important to you know really really focus on what it is that that we love about baseball, right? And and so that we all we all have a, a, a bit of a bias towards the way the game looked when when we were growing up. It's almost like you know to a certain extent we're all like frozen in time as twelve year olds, you know, living and dying with our favorite team, watching the game every single night, playing the game going to the ballpark, watching on TV, just being fully engrossed in it. And, and, and so it's almost cemented in our memories. Baseball is, is, is a certain way. Um, and so I think some of the reluctance to change comes from that, right? Like we all, we all want it to, we, we all want it to stay the same forever. So we can, we can be 12 year olds <laughs> forever. But the reality is for, for baseball fans of, of a certain age, um, the game's a lot, different than it was when when we fell in love with it so some some just to that to some extent change means restoring the great things about the game that we fell in love with in the first place and and you know you can the easiest example but there are many is is just action you know that the 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 game for, for those are we're all about the same age more or less when, when we were growing up the ball was in play a lot more, you know, the strike, the strikeout rate was under control. It was, you know, 20% or even under 20%. And that, that meant the ball was put in play. You had fielders in motion, you had uncertain outcomes, you had athleticism on display in the field and on the, on the basis you had balls in the gap is, you know, is, is the center fielder going to get there and make a dive in play? Or is that getting in the gap? Okay. It got down. Now is, is it going to be a double or is it going to be a triple? There's action. There's, there's, there's drama on, on, a, on a really regular basis. And with, with the rise in strikeout rate, action is just a lot harder to come by and the rise of the three true outcomes. So now, you know, just about a quarter of all plate appearances end in strikeout, you know, walk, walk rate has been pretty constant, but that's another 10% plus of, of plate appearances where the ball is never in play. And then obviously the home run rate has, has, has been increasing. So, you know, such a great percentage of, of plate appearances and without the ball being ever put in play that, that the part of the, one of the elements that we fell in love with, which is, which is, you know, the, the beauty and the artistry of baseball, when the ball's in play and seeing fielders in motion, seeing, you know, the base base runners on the base pass, that's just a much smaller percentage of the game. So when we grew up, the ball, ball was, you know, you could watch a game and, and you'd see a ball in play every couple of minutes. And now, now a fan has to sit there for well over four minutes just to see a ball put in play. So, you know, look, when, when I hear people say like, and when you get, you know, com comments on your articles, don't change the game, leave it exactly the same. I think that I, I totally get where that's coming from. There are elements of the game I don't ever want to touch or, or you know, and I get uneasy when people start talking about changing it. But I think I fall into that trap and, and maybe, maybe, maybe many of us do. Where we're focused on the change itself, we're focused on the rule itself. When we we should really be focusing on what is this going to mean for the action on the field. So what 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 are the outcomes? What are the impacts of the rule? So for instance, like let's let's talk about um, 
you know, a different sport is talk about, you know, the, the NBA and, and like the, the shot clock, right? Like when, when, when they instituted the shot clock, I, d- I doubt there was anyone saying like, this is great. I love, to, I love to go to a basketball <laughs> game where I can watch the clock count down and my, you know, my attention is going to be diverted from the court and I'm not constantly going to be looking up at the shot clock and see if they can get a shot off in time. Nope. Nobody was like a, you know, a fan of the rule itself, but what it created was, um, you know, free-flowing, faster-paced offense with, with a lot more action, a lot more back and forth in the game, a lot, lot more speed and rhythm to the game. So it's, it's, it's the, the outcome of the rule, the impact of the rule, what it creates that I think it, with a successful rule change that we're all fans of. So, so take, for example, like the pitch timer, and I'm sure we'll get into more detail on this stuff, but no one is going to be a fan of the rule itself. I know like the point isn't that we want people to come to the ballpark and, and stare, stare at the pitch timer or even really notice the pitch timer too much. That's, that's not it. That's not the point of, of the rule change. And I understand how people can have, many of us can have like a initial visceral reaction against any kind of clock in baseball. Cause so, again, thinking back to when we were 12 years old, fell in love with the game. Part of what a lot of people fall in love with is the fact that, it's timeless. There is no clock. It's, 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 it's a game that's, you know, organic and could conceivably go on forever as long as you don't, you don't make your 27 <laughs> outs, but you know, we don't expect people to be fans of the rule itself. It's what the rule creates that we really think people will enjoy and fall in love with. And, and what are the outcomes of the pitch timer? Well, kind of like the shot clock in baseball created, you know, uh, more action, um, you know, faster pace, back and forth game. The things that a pitch timer seems to create in baseball are things that we are pretty convinced fans will enjoy. And fans who've experienced this version of the pitch timer in the minor leagues have told us that they really enjoy and players enjoy them too. And, and those things are, um, you know, faster pace with a lot less dead time, you know, game times that are 20 to 30 minutes shorter without sacrificing offense. It's just, you can go have a great time at the ballpark for two hours and 40 minutes, and then go home at a reasonable hour <laughs> instead of three hours and 10 minutes on average. And then importantly, it's not just the pace and not just shorter games, but a pitch timer also just creates a little bit better rhythm and a little bit better action. You know, with, so with the pitch timer, strike strikeout rates have gone down. That means the ball's in play a lot more. With the pitch timer, walk rates have actually gone down. So pitchers just get in a better rhythm and, and throw more strikes. And, and, and that's, a, that, that's a really good thing too. And, and with the pitch timer, you know, fielders are on their toes. They're, they're, they're more into the game. They're engaged, they're making better plays. And fans are more into the game because much like, you know, in, in, in the seventies or eighties, you'd see a pitch every, you know, every 10 to 15 seconds instead of every, every, you know, 20 to 30 seconds. And and that's just, we think a, a better natural rhythm and flow and aesthetic for the game. So again, I totally understand that don't change anything about the game because I think it, it's a protective reaction, uh, protecting what we all fell in love with in the first place. But I think the best way to get past that is focus not on the rule itself, the technical aspects of the rule. We don't want you to think about the rules when you're at the ballpark. We want you to just enjoy the game. And I think some of these rule changes, the best of them potentially are a means to an end for a better, more action-packed, more entertaining, ultimately more enjoyable product. Yes, let's go down that pitch clock rabbit hole 
because you, <laughs> just, you, you, you just talked about the yeah. the rule that was used in that in what used to be the California League last year. That was a 15-second pitch clock, right, with nobody on base? Last year, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, I wrote about that. I, I, I watched a game on minorleaguebaseball.com or MILB.com. It was an incredible experience. It was a night game that was over before it was dark out. <laughs> and so you don't see that much. Um, we did a we we found a, we took a, the first inning of that game, and then we found an I, almost identical first inning of a major league game where it was exactly the same number of batters, same number of pitches, same number of runs scored, runs scored the yep. same way, and yep. then we did a split screen to show people the difference why that minor league inning took, I think it was eight minutes shorter than the big league inning with guys in the big leagues walking around the batter's box. And uh, George Springer came up to bat. I think he, he swung and missed at a pitch and walked completely outside the box and around it, came back. And this is what we've come to get used to in the major leagues, that this rule completely cleaned up. So I know you're going to try the pitch clock in every level of the yeah. minor well, leagues. Can I, inter- can, I, can I interrupt for yes. a second? Because you, I thought you were getting somewhere. You didn't go all the way there. Most importantly, you know, you were watching the game. I'm sure as a as a writer, but also as a fan. Yes. As a fan, how did it make you feel? What did you think about watching that type of game with that pace? I, the the word that came to mind as I was watching was rhythm. The game just yeah. had so much better rhythm. Throw a pitch. Throw it back. <laughs> throw another pitch. <laughs> right. What a concept! <laughs> and and so. Is that the rule that you'll be using in the minor leagues this year? Is that the rule that's likely yeah, to be so, used in the so big leagues it's, next it's year? Generally, it's 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 the same rule with some small tweaks that we made this year based on uh, player feedback from last year and, and observations from, from the experiment last year, both in the Cal League, which is a game you saw, and then also in the Arizona Fall League. So uh, here, here are some of the, the small differences uh, based on the player feedback. So la- last year, the rule was, as you mentioned, 15 seconds with nobody on base and 17 seconds uh, with, with runners on. And one th- well, we realized a couple things from, again, from the player feedback and from observation. One is that with nobody on, we actually weren't getting all the way down on the clock uh, very often. So we thought we could go even quicker with nobody on base. And so uh, we're now at 14 seconds with with nobody on base. And importantly, um, we realized, and and this came largely from from players and and from coaches that with with runners on base, um, 17 seconds was just, you know, often a a tick or two, uh, too short to be able to for pitcher and catcher to be able to go through signs, maybe, you know, change the pitch, get on the same page while also controlling the running game that too often they were rushed at the end and, and just weren't quite able to get on the same page. And so in, in response to that feedback, we decided, you know, we're going to save a second with, with nobody on base. We can give a second or two more with runners on to try to alleviate those concerns and, and just, just create a little bit more time for pitcher and catcher to, to get on the same page. So it's going to be at triple a, um, again, 14 seconds with nobody on, but now 19 seconds, uh, with runners on base. So two additional seconds and then the other levels will be 14 and 18. So, so one additional second, um, and then, uh, you know, the, the other part of the rule, this, this is not a rule just 
just for pitchers, but hitters have a responsibility as well. You mentioned the anecdote about, you know, the hitter walking all the way around the batter's box. Um, last year, um, hitters had to be uh, in the batter's box and attentive to the pitcher ready to hit with eight seconds uh, on the clock. And and this year it's going to be nine seconds remaining on, the, on uh, remaining on the pitch timer. But that's still, you know, for example, a triple A, that still gives the hitter five seconds to do what he needs to do um, on the pitch timer before he's he's attentive and ready to hit. And 10 seconds with runners on base. You know, the pitch timer is 19 seconds. He has to be in there ready to go with nine seconds. So we don't think it's it's uh, overly onerous on hitters. We think they'll still have, you know, that moment to take a deep breath, you know, glance down to the third base coach's box, get, get themselves, go through their little routine and get themselves prepared and ready to hit but be attentive to the pitcher with nine seconds on the timer. And then that's important. That's that gives the pitcher time to work at his rhythm with, you know, with a full nine seconds remaining on the timer. And I'll, and I'll say that, you know, uh, this is a rule that um, players really adapted to quickly. And that was something that we were really locked in on is, you know, you can make, you can make a set of regulations that work great in theory, you know, that look good in paper, but if, players can't adjust to it. And, you know, instead of just playing the game, they're out there thinking about all these different elements of the pitch timer rule, then, you know, you haven't really gained anything. In fact, you've probably made the game worse by doing that. And so we're really interested to see how players would adjust. And, you know, the, the fall league is a really good example. The first couple of days of the pitch timer, of course, there, there were, there were violations as, as, as pitchers and, and catchers and, and, and hitters alike. Um, had to get used to the rule. So I was at a game where uh, I think it was the first day of the pitch timer, Spencer Torkelson, one of the top prospects in baseball, wasn't attentive and ready to hit with eight seconds remaining on the clock. It was a two strike oh. count. So he got the automatic <laughs> strike. He struck out. <laughs> Same thing happened to uh, Tristan Cassis, another top prospect um, the very next day. And that, you know, that's, that's not what we want. We don't, we don't want, you know, uh, at bats to be decided by, by pitch timer violations, but I'll say this, it happened once, right. And, you know, if you're a hitter and, and, and you get punched out cause you haven't, you know, you haven't gotten in the box in time with two strikes, it, it tends not to happen again. And so that first week we saw a number of violations. The second week we saw fewer. And then by the time um, we got three weeks in, in the Arizona fall league, there was less than half a violation per game combined between the two teams. So essentially within three weeks, the, the players in the fall league had completely adjusted to the pitch timer and you were down to less than half a violation per game on average between the two teams. And, 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 and all those things you described, the much better rhythm, um, you know, the, 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 the better game times, the flow, the, 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 the natural feel of the game and, and the better outcomes with more balls in play, all that 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 was in effect. So we do think this is something that will be a significant adjustment uh, for pitchers who've never for players who've never experienced a pitch timer before. That'll be fewer and fewer players as this is rolled out throughout all the minor leagues this year. But it will be a significant adjustment. But that, you know, within a few weeks, it you know, uh, that we've seen that this is something that um, that players can adjust to. And well, uh, Theo, I'm curious, you know, you started to mention about how long it took to kind of become part of a, a natural routine for these players. Yeah. So when you look back at your career in front office and sort of establishing patterns and trends that sometimes become cultural, you say, okay, you know, whether it's stolen bases or how you manage a bullpen, uh, how long typically does it take 
for you to feel like this is now part of the culture. Because sometimes when it does become the part of the culture, in that people start to figure out how to kind of game the system, right? Eventually it's sort of, so how do you kind of stay ahead of that cycle without constantly feeling like you always have to change things? You mean on working with the league or if, if I was with a team? Yeah, look, I think it's, I think it's a, it's, it's constant back and forth, right? So um, organizations are um, always trying to understand the landscape of, the rules off the field in, as determined by the collective bargaining agreement and the rules on the field um, to find uh, areas that they can use to their advantage to, you know, to, to win more games. And players are, are, are constantly doing the same thing, understanding not just the rules, but the way the game is played around them, you know, constantly making adjustments. You know, the, the, the strike zone is strike zones, a, a really good example, you know, where if you give, if, if you're in an era where there are more strikes called up and down, but it's real tight on the edges of the plate, um, or, or, let, or let's say we're in an era where they're calling the high strike, you know, and pitchers, pitchers are going to go up there with impunity and, and get a lot of swings and misses. Um, you know, we've seen that, that, you know, hit hitters coming off an era where we were calling lower strikes and there was, there were a lot more two seam guys and guys pitching down in the zone. A lot of guys had geared their swings you know, to, to drive that ball down in the zone, it took a few years, you know, for the league to start to adjust and start to realize that, well, you know, pitchers are going to start throwing up more and more and more. We need to have an adjustable swing. We need to find where, you know, how to get our bat in the zone on a different plane in order to handle that high fastball up above, up above the barrel. And you're, you're starting to see that now. I think it's taken a couple of years. So it's a constant back and forth, uh, constant cat and mouse game with organizations, and players alike trying to understand the playing the landscape of play as defined by the rules and by what different organizations are doing and how players are playing the game and making adjustments. So I think that's going to be constant. And that's why it's so important to have uh, a process in place where players and the league are talking about the way the game is played, about the way the rules impact the way the game is played for better and for worse and try to find fixes um when the rules create a game that's not to the liking of the fans or to the liking of the players or that's a better way to do things so i think it's just constant constant adjustment you know you're not looking to make changes for changes sake you're, you're not looking to you know have a game that's changing so rapidly that fans can't you know relate to it or can't um or, or are sitting at the ballpark thinking about the rules trying to understand the rules we want them to be focused on the players focus on the play on the field but it takes it takes you know some maintenance. I think you you want to make sure that you know you're not letting trends get out of control one way or another if they possibly move towards the detriment of the game. That you can stay a little bit ahead of that with with the rules. You know, I apologize for this, but I've been thinking now for the last three minutes about Angel Hernandez calling out Juan <laughs> Soto for not getting back in the box while he's doing the Soto shuffle. What do you think <laughs> would ensue if that ever went on? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know, with, with, well, first of all, we don't have a pitch timer at the big league level yet, right? Yeah. But in, in a, in a hypothetical um, world where we do, um, 
enforcement's going to be important, right? Because if you if you don't have uniform enforcement, then A, it's not that fair, and B, then you're never going to influence behaviors, and then you're never going, you know, you're never going to get to a point where you see all the benefits for the game overall and for the fans, you know, all the things that the, you <laughs> raved about earlier. So, yeah, there's going to be, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, a comfortable feeling seeing you know Torkelson and Cassis called out on strikes, but and it was the talk of the fall league for you know, twenty four to forty eight hours, and some negative things were written, and I felt bad for those players. But ultimately, the umpires did the right thing. There was uniform enforcement. You know, it took a little courage to to enforce the rule, and after three weeks, the the fall league and then the game itself was 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 in a better place, and 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 there was probably more entertaining product put on the field. So. If we get to a point where there's a pitch timer in the big leagues, you'll, you know, that process will pl probably play out where there's, you know, it's going to be on the umpires to, to really have uniform enforcement so that players can adjust to avoid those ball strike penalties. And we can see all the, the benefits of, of a pitch timer, but it's also on the people making the rules to, to come up with versions of the rule that um, are effective. You, you don't want to water it down and then you and then you don't get the benefits but that are also manageable and that's the reason why rules are tested out in the minor leagues to be able to, to see how play how long it takes players to adjust and 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 whether you can get to a point where they don't have to think about the pitch timer you want players playing the game fans want players playing the game players don't want to be thinking about the rules they want to be thinking about the next pitch and their routines and staying in the moment and playing the game so you know um we hope to learn through the minor league experiments that, you know, to find a version of the, the pitch time rules that, that work and that players can adjust to after a few weeks and just let them play the game. And it's a better product overall for fans and everyone else. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to spend this much time on the pitch clock, but it is interesting. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about it is what you keep alluding to is that it, it didn't just create that crisper rhythm. There was more action. There were fewer strikeouts. You had a more entertaining product What's your theory on why just having a pitch clock created fewer strikeouts and more action? Yeah, and, and just to give you some some details on that, the strikeout rate went down three point eight percentage points um, wow. with the pitch timer, so uh, twenty eight point eight percent K rate uh, without the pitch timer down to twenty five percent with, and the walk rate went down. 1.7 percentage points, so 11.7 percentage points to 11.7 to, percent uh, walk rate to a 10 percent walk rate. So, look, it's not you can't. It's a small sample size, and and there are a lot of elements at play. So it's not fair to say it's directly attributable um, to to the, to the pitch timer. And, and I should I should note that there were actually fewer injuries as well. Again, small sample size, but overall, you know, the injury rate went down the pit, with the pitch timer as well. But I think it's it's you know it's it's what your intuition would would tell you if I were to speculate. It's, it's that, um, you know, when when pitchers are working at a crisp pace, they're a little bit more on the offensive. They're they're attacking the strike zone. Um, and then and then also, you know, if, if, if you're not taking uh, 30 seconds between pitches, you're not necessarily maxing out every pitch. So what what you know, let's let's take two extremes, you know, a, a pitcher working under the pitch timer, say, who's naturally fast worker who's going to throw a pitch like every, every 10 to 10 to 12 seconds. And on the other extreme, let's say, in, you know, in 2021 major league baseball, um, you know, a pitcher who's a really deliberate worker takes 30 seconds between pitches who, who really gathers himself, 
takes time to recover physically between pitches, really makes each pitch itself, you know, getting the signs, going through his routine, getting himself ready, recovering physically, and then presenting the pitch. Each pitch becomes like a production, like a 30-second production instead of that great, you know, rhythm that you talked about. Well, the pitcher who takes 30 seconds and makes every pitcher production is going to throw harder, probably, you know, get, get more swings, swings and swings and misses. And, 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 you know, maybe, you know, work his way through with the catcher back and forth until they have the perfect pitch in the perfect situation every single time. So, you know, a lot of times they're going to be looking to like take advantage of that velocity. It's a power game, get, find ways to get hitters to chase. And it's, it's a strikeout game. You're taking 30 seconds to be able to figure out how to get a swing and miss essentially. And, you know, one of the things that went with that was a technology that we saw being used in big league spring training this year, which was that pitch com. Um, You know, we've, we've talked about this. It's always amazed me. The NFL has been calling plays electronically for more than two decades. And in baseball, we've been wiggling fingers. (laughs) And it just looking at pitch com, which is a a way of calling pitches electronically yeah. Uh, the response to it this spring, it feels like that could be about to change. Can you explain to people what that is and what the likelihood is that we'll see it in the big leagues this year? Yeah, well, Pitchcom is a technology um, that allows catchers and pitchers to communicate um, without, as you said, without giving signs the traditional way. The catcher has a wristband on where he can very quickly signal the type of pitch and the location. So fastball that, you know, fastball up and in, he can slide her down and away with two quick presses of his finger. The pitcher uh, through, through some really effective technology, will just hear it, you know, from, from a small piece in, uh, uh, of technology inserted into the, the sweatband of his hat. He'll hear it. It's, it's loud enough for him to hear, even with the crowd noise, but not loud enough for obviously for the hitter for the hitter to hear it. Uh, so the pitcher hears it, the catcher hears it. Uh, some of the fielders, if they have the the, the technology in their hat, can hear it as well. And so you just very quickly and, and confidentially get the pitch call. And 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 of course, where this comes into play, um, you know, most significantly is with with runners on second base because we've. We've all, you know, seen what happens to to the to, to the flow of the game when runners get on second base. It just things grind grind to a halt because, you know, there's a real cat and mouse game with 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 runners on second trying trying to figure out the sign sequence and and get the pitch and 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 pass it on to the hitter. And that's something that's as old as the game itself. And you know, you can debate the merits of whether there's anything wrong with it. I think that's accepted within the game because it's gone on so long that if, if, if the runner on second can, can figure out the signs and pass it on, then great more power to them. But it's really the impact of what happens to the game. That's the problem. It's not necessarily, you know, passing along the sign from second base. That's the issue. It's the fact that now, because it's such a big part of the game, you know, the game slows down. The catcher has to come out from behind home plate. He has to get on the same page with the pitcher about you know, which of our sign sequences we're doing. So you sometimes have to change sign systems that you're using within the, certainly within the course of an inning and, and, or a game, but even sometimes within the course of an at-bat, if you think the, the runner is picked up on. So the, the game just grounds to a halt with runners on second base. And with the pitchcom technology, that would be eliminated from the game. You know, you, the, the catcher can oftentimes 
give the pitcher the pitch that he wants, even before he gets on the rubber, even as he's, you know, sort of catching the ball and, and working his way back to the rubber, the catcher, we saw this in the minor leagues last year, can give the pitch to the pitcher. And now he just can focus on his routine and take a deep breath and, and go execute the pitch. So it just, uh, you know, it speeds the game along, but I think the biggest thing is it's, it's the, you know, it's really a perfect antidote to the issues of, of, sign stealing and the impacts of sign stealing on pace and flow and aesthetics of the game. Yeah, there was really positive response to it. As you know, this spring, do you think there's a chance that we will see it used in the big leagues at all this year? Yeah. You know, it, it was, it was made available to, to every major league camp, the spring training. And as you said, there, there were a lot of, a lot of camps where, where pitchers and catchers took to it, took it right on the field and really loved it. And they're actually, you know, asking, uh, I, I was going to say demanding, but not demanding, but asking, you know, for the ability to use it in, in major league games. And there's other camps where, you know, uh, pitchers were a little bit more hesitant and didn't catch on quite as much. So ultimately whether it gets approved uh, for use in 2022, that's something that um, the, the commissioner's office will be, you know, determining o over the, over the next day or two. But I think, you know, the long-term, the outlook is that, you know, this is this is a piece of technology that a lot of us feel can can help the game. And, and, and also, also, you know, if we ever do get to a point where the pitch timer is, is, is going to be in the major leagues, you pretty much need the pitch com because with, uh, you know, with, with how prevalent um, the cat and mouse sign stealing game is with runners on second in the big leagues, it, you really couldn't you couldn't get to um, a, a pitch timer, you know, of 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 anywhere close to, to 17 seconds with runners on base, unless you had the ability for pitchers and catchers to communicate quickly and, and, and well, you know, is there any concern that, you know, someone might get like a pizza order interference into your hat or something, you know, <laughs> the, the, the hacking. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, the technology obviously has to be, be uh, hack proof. And someone folks, order an Uber. Someone get an Uber here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you mentioned interference. Like it, that's the other thing is there's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of signal out there in major league ballparks. You know, you got to sell out a crowd. You got 40,000 people with, uh, smartphones all, you know, on, on Wi-Fi networks and stuff. Um, so it, it has to be not only unhackable, but able, you know, we have to make sure the technology is such that there's no, uh, no outside interference that gets in the way of the system. So those are things that, that uh, have been worked through and will continue to be worked through. But, um, you know, even, even in these early days of the pitch com, I think it's, it's really meaningful that you've got a lot of major league pitchers asking to take it right out into a major league game, you know, with that with real wins and losses and real stats that dictate their future earning and everything. They, they want that ability to communicate that quickly in a new so I'm way. I'm curious, you know, you know Theo, with, within that, how, how much do you think it, this sort of process for Pitchcom was accelerated by what happened, you know, with the Astros and sign stealing. I mean, was it something that was kind of, it seems like it's inevitable, but was it accelerated, you know, because of the circumstances where players maybe are calling for that? Like, hey, I'm worried about my signs getting stolen now. I really want to advance this. Yeah, look, I think, again, we want everyone's attention to be on the game you know, the game itself and on the players. And, and when, when you have um, too many people, you know, focus on, on, on sign stealing, when that, when that becomes potentially a, a difference between, you know, winning and losing that that's not the best version of baseball. The best version of baseball is, you know, level playing field, let, let the players go out and play and determine 
determine the game. So sure, like some of the some of the science dealing controversies and and just how how prominent it's been, you know, even the, the traditional way of stealing signs from uh runner on 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 second base, that itself has had negative impacts on the game just because of the uh the defensive measures that that uh, teams have to take to get around it. So I, I think the biggest factor is just how much the game slows down with runners on base and especially with runners on second. That that in and of itself I think is is given given the fan feedback to um you know, pace of play and, and length of game and, you know, uh, how much fans tell us they don't like inaction and dead time and how much they do like action and, and seeing the ball put in play. Just the, just the amount the game slows down with runners on second in itself is is enough um, justification to, to really seriously consider the pitch com. But of course, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great way to make sure that we don't have future science dealing controversies. All right, let's talk a, a, about another issue that people are really fixated on, which is the shift. Uh, you experimented with limiting the shift in AA last year. Um, you're expanding that experiment this year. Um, this is another one of those rule changes that seems likely to reach the big leagues in 2023. Uh, but I dug into those numbers from AA. I know you have. It, it didn't feel like just putting two infielders on each side of second base had the impact that people probably expect and so what's going to happen this season in the minors and what's the best way to address the impact that shifting has had on this sport? Yep. So uh, this year in the minor leagues, um, everywhere except the AAA level, there's going to be the uh, two components to the um, uh, positioning restrictions. The first is depth so that uh, the infielders can't be deeper than, than the outside edge of, of the infield dirt. So all four infielders have to be in the infield, can't be in the outfield. And the second, as you mentioned, is that uh, two infielders have to be on either side of, of second base. And you mentioned the results last year from double A um, when, we, when we tested this rule. And I think the first thing I'd say about the results, and I can get into some of the details in a second, but um, the shift, shift restrictions is a topic for which there's really no perfect laboratory outside of the big leagues because there's just so much more shifting in the big leagues than there is in, in the minor leagues because we know so much about hitter tendencies and and and, and what the game plan is going to be against hitters um, in the big leagues that you know every team has um, tons of data and some of you know algorithms um, helping to determine exactly where where each fielder is is going to stand and and there's just a much greater percentage of hitters who are shifted in the big leagues than, than in the minor leagues so. Um, you have to take any data from the double A experiment with, you know, uh, uh, a big, big grain of salt. Um, but th that said, you know, there was a modest increase on, on balls in play for left-handed hitters to the tune of about five points, which is, which is not insignificant. And then I think what's really interesting is if you, if you look only at those double A hitters who were, were heavily shifted in the past, you know, so, so the, the left-handed hitters who, um, you know, pull the ball so frequently that, you know, even without advanced scouting reports, teams, teams picked up on say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to shift these guys every time. If you, if you look only at that subsection of players, the shift restrictions actually had a really significant increase on, on batting average and balls in play for those hitters to the tune of about 22 points. Wow. So that might be a better somewhere in between those is probably a better approximation of, of the impact it might have on the big leagues. And look, you can take that same data, 
depending where you are on the shift and make an argument for the shift restrictions and you know that's great you know we we should be looking to improve the you know the in-play environment for hitters to reward contact and get the ball in play or you could say you know look you know uh, th- that's that's the unintended consequence we're trying to to guard against you know you're you're creating a rule that that only rewards you know a certain subset of hitters these left-handed pull only hitters who are one-dimensional those aren't the types of players that we're trying to reward we're, we're looking for multi-dimensional players athletes contact hitters who spray the ball all around the field and can beat the shift so you know look this this one this topic defensive positioning restrictions and, and banning the shift is one that's that's really controversial and and you can make i think strong arguments on on both sides i think our job is to sort of take our personal preferences out of it and ultimately make sure we study it carefully to get to a point where we end up doing the right thing for the game to create the best possible product and i think we're going to learn a lot this year you know there's there's i will say there's one one argument that I think doesn't get enough attention in favor of um, shift restrictions, and that is what it does for the infielders themselves. Like we talk all the time about what it means for hitters, what it means for certain types of hitters, the incentives we're going to create. Are we are we making life too easy for the pull hitters? And um, you know, or, or we're talking sort of theoretically, shouldn't it, shouldn't the, the defense have the ability to position themselves wherever they want? And those are the types of arguments you get on both sides, but very rarely. Do we talk about the fact that what we saw last year, you know, the shift restriction is great if you love uh, athletic, dramatic infield defense. You know, the, the best infielders in the world having room to roam instead of being bunched up and make, and having to make do or die plays at the end of their range. Because that's something that in, in, a, in a shift heavy league, you just don't see as much of as you used to, because now you've got three infielders bunched together on, on the right side of the field. They're perfectly positioned and, and hard hit balls. How often do you see end up, you know, going, going right to a third baseman who's now playing second base in short right field. And, and, and you don't have to have the premium on, on range and athleticism with your second baseman as you, as you had in the past. Now it's becoming more of a bat first position. Well, when you have, uh, shift restrictions and you have to have two fielders on either side of second base. Now all of a sudden the fielders are spread out. Second base becomes an extremely important defensive position and, and, you know, range is at a premium. Athleticism is at a premium. The ability to make plays at the end of your range where you're diving or sliding and, you know, sliding backhand play and pop up or leave your feet and make that, that dive and play in the hole that that becomes extremely important. So the feedback we got from fans and importantly from infielders was that they really liked the shift restrictions because it it, it brought back athletic, um, rangy middle infielders who who were diving all over the field. And if you know the the fielders themselves felt you know freed up. They told us like we love this because we feel like we can show off our range. We feel like. We, you know, we have to make plays now. We have to go get balls. We're in the past. We just listened to the manager, listened to our, our position and co- instructions and just sat there and let the ball come to us. So I think, to you know, yes, there are arguments to make about, you know, philosophically about whether defense should have, you know, the ability to strategize and position themselves wherever they want. But, but don't forget about what it means for, you know, the action that comes with great defensive infielders 
And and ultimately it's, it's really putting the game back in the hands of, of the players. Like, I think, I think fans prefer a game to be won or lost by, you know, whether a second baseman can range all the way up in the middle and, and, and make that diving play and throw the runner out at first, first base versus like, did, did, did my team have the proper algorithm to perfectly position that third <laughs> infielder on the right side? And so that ball was hit right at him and, and we got the out that way. So, you know, I think this, this is one of those rule changes that really does um, put the game more back in the player's hands and put the premium back on athleticism at certain positions where it's important. Well, yeah, Theo, I, it's, uh, I actually interviewed Albert Almora Jr. a couple of spring trainings ago, and I learned that playing defense off of Jimmy Pearsall. And Pearsall was relentless about getting your jumps, leaning into a play, getting your lead. You know, he was all, you were in motion as soon as the ball left the pitcher's hand based on the swing and all the charts that you knew. And so that was your jump. And, and then you played off of your strength. I, I like to play shallow. I like going back. And you were able to sort of navigate that within the framework of the information you had. But so much of it was about being in motion. So then one spring, two years ago, interviewed Albert Almora Jr. And we were just talking about jumps. And I went into this long explanation about how I got jumps with Jimmy Pearsall, how he taught me and lean in. And so I was like, hey, Albert, like, so what do you do? What do you do to get your jump to get to that right spot? And he said, well, what are you talking about? I'm already in the right spot, <laughs> right? So, you know, so there's something to be said for like that information. And and like, yeah, it's Manny Machado catching a ball in the right field corner is interesting. <laughs> but I just remember talking to John Farrell when he took over the Red Sox. I don't know if you were there or overlap, but he said, um, he said, yeah, when you have these infielders in the beginning, we're making all these throwing errors because they were so unfamiliar in making throws from positions they had never seen before, you know, Pedroia's over here and all of a sudden. Yeah. So, you know, so I, I think it's, you know, trying to, like you said, figure out this balance between, you know, what do you want to see, you know, in that product? I mean, I love, you know, Ozzy Smith and these guys, you know, showing off those range. And so I guess my question within that is, do you get any feedback from the teams saying, Hey, you know, I just drafted a whole core of players that do X, Y, and Z and now all of a sudden now, you know, I need this rangy shortstop or I need a guy that can doesn't have to spray the ball around anymore. I mean, how quickly does that happen where teams have to really reassess like how they're developing and 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 drafting talent? And, and does that create any um, problems? Yeah. Look, I think, again, it's it's constant. It's a game of adjustments, not only for players, but also for for front offices when it comes to. Um, drafting strategy, development strategy, and, and, and putting putting a team together. And so, I think for front offices, it's it's always important to to understand not only um, the landscape of the game on the field at the current moment, but also where the game is headed. And that team team spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about um, what the game is going to look like three four years from now, and, and how can how can we draft and develop to. Uh, to get ahead and and where where we see around the corner where where we see the the game headed and that that's that's um you know that's been the case throughout baseball history and when you're at a time where there's the potential for more change then it's even more important to to be able to anticipate what the game's going to look like and you can get you know with all any of these rule changes um you can find examples of why that's important for offices and why they have to adjust you could take you know the future of abs and if 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 you if you're in a world where 
you know, balls and strikes are being called by, by ABS instead of by a human umpire, then obviously the nature of the catching position changes fundamentally. And, you know, you're not, you're not going to want to spend, you know, all your time drafting for framing and, and drafting for catchers who excel at framing when in an ABS world, the, the, um, you know, the premium will be on, on throwing, you know, blocking, throwing, and then the bat for catchers or framing won't be, um, you know, an important trade at all. And so, yeah, I bet, you know, to some extent in the draft, in draft rooms right now, when, when, you know, you get to the point in draft where you're talking about a, a catcher who's, who's, whose primary skill might be framing, I'm sure it comes up in draft rooms. Well, what do we think the chances are there's going to be ABS in the big leagues and how valuable is this guy in a world where, you know, framing's not, not a priority skill for us. And you, that, that every, every rule change has ramifications on, on player uh, personnel uh, philosophy and, and player development philosophy. And so I think it's just fair that I think it's just important that MLB, you know, be as transparent as we possibly can. You know, we're trying to make an extremely inclusive process with these, with these rule changes. We have club analysts, um, you know, giving uh, interpretations of the data on, on, on the impacts of the rule experiments. We're um, obviously the joint committee is going to, um, be extremely important communicating with the players and then communicating back to, to, to all 30 organizations. So I, I guess I'd say it's a, it's a level playing field, but that, you know, teams are already thinking ahead to not only where the game is now, but where it's headed and what kind of traits would be important. You know, the pitcher roster limits, that's a good example. That was, you know, the 13 pitcher roster limit. That was a rule that was passed a couple of years ago. It went away because of COVID. It's going to be back in play, you know, starting, I, think, I believe it's May 1st of, of, of this year. And, and, you know, how many pitchers you're allowed to carry on your roster fundamentally impacts the, the types of pitchers that you look for in the draft. And then even more importantly, your pitching development philosophy. Like, are you, are you developing pitchers to miss bats? And if that means that you're going to develop a lot of really effective one inning relievers, but you have really high strikeout rates and, and max out their stuff, you know, that that's something that you can, you can get away with in a world where there are no limits in the amount of pitchers that you can roster at a given time. But in a world where there, there are real constraints on, on how many pitchers you can have on your roster, you're going to need to develop, you know, pitchers, you know, relievers who can go multiple innings and, and aren't, aren't strictly maxing out for, for, for power and stuff and strikeouts. And, and the biggest thing is you're going to need to really focus on developing starting pitchers who can, who can go deep into the game and, and, and eat up a significant amount of the, the 1400 innings that you have to cover over the course of the year. So yeah, every one of these rule changes, uh, there's potential, you know, uh, real impacts on, on the way front offices operate. Uh, since Doug brought up outfield positioning, uh, it's a really good um, segue to ask you about some of the stuff that's going to be new for this year because I've heard some talk about there won't just be limitations on where infielders can stand in the minor leagues, but there could be limitations on where outfielders can stand in the minor leagues. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, not this out, outfield uh, positioning and outfield positioning restrictions. That's not a topic that's at the point where there's, there's an actual rule change in the minor leagues or rule experiment in the minor leagues. It's merely a, a topic that um, we think is worthy of, of some investigation and some, some uh, informal experiments. So, so that maybe, you know, if there's traction or we find a rule that helps, helps the game, we can maybe roll it out, you know, at some point to the minor leagues, but the, the, the issue, the problem we're trying to 
potentially solve for here is that uh, analytics have um, have have shown clubs that uh, and have proven that positioning outfielders deeper is a very effective way to to prevent runs. Um, Doug, I know you said you you know you were one of the rare infielders who outfielders who prefers to to play shallow and go back, but uh, by and large, uh, you know analytics can 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 really demonstrate that you move outfielders back and you take away doubles and tri- sure you give up a few more singles, but you take away doubles and triples. You turn those extra base hits into outs, and 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 on average, you're going to prevent a lot more runs doing it that way. So if you look at the average starting position for outfielders over the last 10 to 15 years, it's creeped back further and further and further with each year. And the double and triple rate has gone down each year as outfielders position themselves uh, deeper and deeper. And and the the reason why that's a problem um, in the big picture is that fans tell us they love doubles, they love triples and the action that those plays create, and they love great defensive plays. So like, one thing fans love is when there's, you know, there's a deep fly ball, ball hit into the gap, center fielder is, is you know, on a full sprint going forward. He's got to leave his feet and dive. Does he make that play? Um, fans want, uh, or is it going to be a double and triple, you know, base runners in motion, defense is making the relay, bang, bang, play at the bag. This is a great baseball play. And um, I think what it tells us is that fans, when, when the ball is put in play, when the ball's in the air, I think fans like some element of some suspense, some uncertainty, some action when the ball is hit. Um, and with outfielders playing so deep, when a ball goes up in the air now, it's oftentimes either a home run or it's an out. Um, and so uh, what we're trying to solve for is, is there a way um, to create an outfield positioning rule that could help nudge the doubles and triples rate, the extra base hit rate, back to say – you know, levels where they were 15 years ago or so. And, and and so we've been toying around with the idea of creating a restriction um that that would that would that would force the average starting depth of outfielders to cre- to creep in a little bit by creating a, a maximum depth where they can start when the pitch is thrown. So for some context, the average center fielder in the big leagues now stands like 300, 320 feet away from home plate. The average corner outfielder stands about 295 feet um, away from home plate. That's uh, for, for all three outfielders, that's about 192 feet from second base. That's probably a better way to think about it. Um, you know, the circle defined with uh, 192 foot uh, radius from second base. That's where outfielders position themselves. And that's, you know, a good 10 to 15 feet deeper than, than it was, you know, 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and so as a result of, of the deepening outfielders, the, the double and triples rate is now down around 4.7%, where it was it was up at, you know, 5.5% um, back in 2006, 2007. And if you, we had a team of analysts dig into the data and the correlation is that for every 10 feet shallower that the outfield plays, uh, there's about a 0.2% increase in extra base hit rate. So for example, you know, if, if outfielders stand 192 feet on average um, from second base now, let's, if you made, if you move that in 25 feet, that's, that's a little bit extreme. Let's say you move that in 25 feet. So you're, you're moving the average starting position for a center fielder from 320 feet from home plate to 295. And that, that's where some, that's where some, some, uh, some outfielders stand there now. 
you know, but, but that's considered shallow. What that would do a restriction that, that causes outfielders to start 25 feet shallower would increase that doubles. We think would increase that doubles and triples rate by 0.5%, which would get you right back to pre 2010 levels. And what it would do moreover, by forcing the outfielders to start shallower, it would decrease catch probability on a lot of balls and create more 50, 50 balls. So, you know, if an outfielder, imagine, imagine a green line painted on the field or, the, or an out, outfield grass cut a different way. So there was, there was uh, a curved line in the outfielders outfielder had to, couldn't start deeper than that line. So more balls are going to be going over their heads. They're going to have to go back on balls more often. It creates more suspense on, on when balls go in the air, it creates more uncertainty on outcomes, more action, more premium on athleticism in the outfielders. If you think, if you think back to, um, you know, watching the game from the 1980s, you oftentimes saw balls, you know, deep fly balls hit and outfielders would go back on those balls because they were playing a lot shallower than they do now. And balls would land on the warning track or one hop on the wall or players would, players would have to deal with the fence and, and go back and, do they make the play? Do they not make the play? There was more uncertainty. You know, you can't speak in generalities, but these days, as, as deep as outfielders are playing, that, that's a play that's a lot more rare. The, the, the doubles and triples rate is down, and there's just a lot more catch certainty. Balls are either home runs or, or relatively routine plays. So it's just an interesting concept to think about whether it's worth considering that type of rule that, that forces outfielders to start five or 10 or 15 feet shallower than, than the major league average is now. And and create a lot more action on on balls that go in the air. So is it is a tough rule to conceptualize? Is it a tough one to um, you know to 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 put into play because it's it's so uh, so different than what we're used to. So where we are with it right now is we're essentially just um, going to work with some teams that are interested in 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 collaborate in cooperating in extended spring training, and we're going to just going to go out there and and. Um, you know, toy with some positioning restrictions. We'll, we'll, we'll cut the grass different in the outfield at, at a spot that means that outfielders are all playing shallower than they normally would and see what it looks like and see what it feels like, see what it, what it means for players, what it means for fans, what it means for the way the game is played. And, and if there's a strong consensus that this is something that's worth continuing to experiment with, then, you know, maybe, maybe down the line, that could be something that you take to the Atlantic league, or you even take to the lower levels of the minor leagues, because, you know, for all the talk about uh, infield defensive restrictions, I think you get, you actually would get a greater impact on batting average and balls in play and uh, increase action in the game more. If you could find just the right, tweak to outfield positioning and uh and really bring back a lot of uh, action and, and 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 drama on balls and play in the outfield wow let me ask you about one more uh potential new wrinkle uh this year i i wrote a story about this last week it got incredible reaction i just minding my own business just talking to people at spring training and i had a minor league instructor say to me Hey, I'm not sure if you heard, but we're moving second base. I said, "What? <laughs> Where would it move? To a beach house, you know?" And uh, looked into it a little bit, and this is amazing. I, I know I didn't know this. Seems like the entire planet was unaware that for more than a century, second base has been in the wrong place. Okay, and so in the minor leagues later this year, you're actually going to move second base. So. 
try to explain <laughs> what the heck this is all about. I know nobody can explain this if you can't explain this. Hey, you're, you're the one who said second base is in the wrong place, not me. So I'm glad you said that. Um, True. Yeah. So look, with this one, the, with the bigger bases and the positioning of second base, again, I think it's it's important to, to start with the big picture and what, what are the great elements of the game that we're trying to encourage and, and amplify here. And that's uh, daring base running and, and, and stolen, stolen base activity. You know, fans tell us they love action on the bases. They love stolen bases. They have stolen base attempts. And that's something that, um, as you know, and as we've, as we've talked about before, is just becoming a smaller and smaller part of the game. You know, the stolen base attempt rates at generational lows and, and um, teams are, it, it's now become um, a, a mathematical equation, you know, where teams basically only, only run if based on pitchers delivery times and catcher pop times, they, they, they can have an extremely high certainty of being safe. And um, so what, what we're, the big picture is what we're hoping to do is, is, is uh, tilt, tilt the scales a little bit more in favor of the base runner, make, make the life of the base dealer and the base runner a little bit easier to encourage more chances, more informed risk taking on the bases and create more stolen base action and more first to third action, more, you know, scoring from first on a double, more bang, bang plays on the bases, more action for the fans. So, you know, one way to do that would be by taking the, you know, 90 feet between bases, which is as old as the game itself and say, Hey, let's make that, you know, 89 feet or 88 feet, uh, because that'll make, that'll make stealing bases a little bit easier. It'll clear more stolen base activity, but you know, that's a bridge too far. No one wants to mess with the, the sacred numbers of the game, 90 feet between bases. Um, and so, you know, we got to this idea with you could conceivably create the same phenomenon with the same potential benefits and encouraging the running game just by making the bases a little bit bigger. And, and when we started this, this process, we asked all 30 major league managers, um, all, how if they knew how big a base was and not a single one <laughs> knew that bases were 15 inches by 15 inches which you told us that you know, we're not messing with the sacred number of the game we make the base slightly bigger um so you know by making by making the bases uh, 18 inches by 18 inches instead of uh 15 inches by 15 inches uh you're decreasing the distance between first and second base by by four and a half inches which which brings us to the point that the bases were never 90 feet apart to begin with the, the diamond on which the bases are set out is uh 90 feet by 90 feet but um first and third base as you mentioned are set inside that diamond and second base is actually centered on that diamond um so it's it's it it never was um 90 feet between bases you know throughout baseball history the last 100 years or so it's uh it's always been 88 feet and one and a half inches between bases. <laughs> no. For the, you know, the size of the base themselves always been 88 feet, one and a half inches between bases. And now, uh, you know, by going to a bigger base, that's eight, that's 18 by 18, you get the three and a half inches from first base, the three inch, uh, the inch and a half, the three inches from first base, the inch and a half from second base. And that becomes 87 feet, nine inches between bases. So that's reducing it four and a half inches to get an even bigger uh, encouragement for stolen base activity and to further reduce the distance between bases uh, in, in the second half of the minor leagues this year, not only will the bases be bigger, but we're going to quote unquote, fix the positioning of second base. Since Jason, you said it was in the wrong place. <laughs> uh, so instead of being, in, instead of having second base centered 
on the intersection of, of the baseball di- at the top of the diamond. Second base will be moved about a foot uh, closer to home plate, which will bring it just exactly in the same spot that first and third base are, you know, tucked right in inside inside the baseball diamond itself. And, and that'll have the uh, the impact of, of further reducing the distance between first and second and second and third by nine more inches. So between the bigger bases and the repositioned second base, that means uh, the distance is reduced by a total of 13 and a half inches between first and second and second and third. And that actually uh, was an experiment that took place in the second half of, of AAA West last year. And um, it had it had the anticipated effect on, on stolen base activity with, with just the bigger bases, um, stolen base success rate increased by 0.7%, which is in line with what the uh, the analytical projections had. We thought stolen base percentage would increase by about a percentage point. Essentially it did 0.7%. And then with the uh, the repositioning of second base, as well as the bigger bases, the stolen base percentage went up uh, 2.2%. So uh, up to 77%. So obviously, you know, you, you, you more dramatically decrease the distance between bases, you're, you're going to very likely see an increase in, in stolen base success rate. And then in time, an increase in, in stolen base attempt rate as well, because, um, you know, obviously as, as the math changes, teams are going to get a little bit more daring on the base pass. Well, I, and I can verify, Theo, that we, I think I interviewed you at NBC like years ago where you mentioned the size of the base. It was kind of like revolutionary at the time, but <laughs> I, I did a column called Death of the Stolen Base and you mentioned this, you know, four or five years ago. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, here's a little tidbit I would add. Is there any concern? Because I, I'm always thinking about this with instant replay because there's one thing to show the numbers, but it's another to kind of recognize that base stealers get more tentative because, okay, I'm going to steal second, but then when I hit the base, if I stay, come off by a micro centimeter on super slow ro- replay, I'm going to be yeah. called out. And I'm thinking, you know, so I don't know how much that discouraged. I know there was a period that was very discouraging to base runners. So there's there any effort to not only help with the math, but also recognize that, is that really the intent of replay to get this like, oh, the guy's spike was off by 0.0? Yeah. Is there any effort to kind of address that? Yeah, that, that that would be another way to slightly tilt the favor, tilt tilt the scales in favor of the the base runner and and and, and the base stealer, and and that's that's a perfect topic for for the new joint committee, joint competition committee set out by the CBA, where. You know, I, I think everyone would agree that was not the intent of replay is, you know, to, to to ring up base dealers who are clearly safe and then come a millimeter off the bag and are tagged out. So that that's a, a great topic, you know, at some point, theoretically, for the joint committee to look at and come up with a solution, whether it's just make not making that play reviewable. So putting that play in the hands of the umpire. But if it's not reviewable, then you're not going to have these, you know, uh, as you said, the, the the millimeter off the base uh, base runner being rung up. So, yeah, it's, I think it's unknown how big of a deterrent that is. But clearly it would only move the needle one way in favor of uh, um, the base dealer taking more chances. One more thing that's new this year is yeah. robot umps automatic ball strike system that's using the minor leagues. It's going to be tweaked a little bit in the league formerly known as the Florida state league, right? In which rather than have that system call every pitch, you're going to a challenge system. This is fascinating. How would this work? 
Yeah. And again, this is, this is something that, you know, it's not, not, not one of those experiments that it's close to the big leagues per se. It's, it's being tried um, as, as you said, just in the Florida state league as a potential alternative to consider to, to full blown ABS. So the way the challenge system would work with that would be that instead of ABS calling the balls and strikes, which is the case under the traditional ABS system, uh, the home plate umpire, the human being would call <laughs> balls and strikes like normal, but ABS would be running in the background and each team would have three challenges per game where the uh, pitcher, the hitter, or the catcher could challenge the ball strike call. And uh, they would have to challenge it right after the pitch. And then the home plate umpire would instantaneously get the, the correct pitch call um, from the ABS operator in an earpiece and then, and then adjudicate the challenge. Um, if the challenge was uh, a worthy challenge and the call is reversed, the challenging team would keep their challenge. So you'd get three challenges per game. um, And if you're wrong, you lose the challenge. And if you're right, you keep them. And um, the, the rationale for considering something like a challenge system is that it could potentially um, provide a lot of the key benefits of ABS without some of the potential drawbacks. And so for example, you know, a challenge system would still give you the ability to get the calls right, which is the whole point of ABS in the first place. You know, every uh, bad miss call, uh, ball strike call, you could challenge and 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 get the call right. Every high leverage call that you think goes against you, you could challenge under the challenge system and make sure you 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 get the call right. Um, but you, you know, one, one criticism of ABS is that perhaps it's too much automation in, in the game. You know, there's that, there's, that, that there's, there's a lot of benefit to human beings being part of the game and the home plate, home plate umpire calling balls and strikes. Home plate umpires do a fantastic job of managing the game, uh, probably more so than, than fans realize sometimes where, you know, the, the, the zone can change based on game situation. If you have a blowout game, the get the, the, the strike zone is going to get a little bit bigger, um, to, to keep the game moving. And, and, you know, otherwise, you know, there are a lot of games you'd be there for four and a half hours in a huge blowout game. If you, if you stuck to, to the, to the rule book strike zone, another potential drawback of ABS, uh, some people are, are concerned that, you know, the catching position is going to fundamentally change that with full-blown ABS um, framing and, and, and receiving will, will become something of, of a lost art and that the catching position will be all about the bat and, 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 and throwing arm. Well, this preserves the importance of framing and, and, and receiving because it's still a human being calling pitches. It's, it's just the ABS system that's used to uh, adjudicate challenges that come up. So, I think, I think that's the rationale. And, and this is one of those experiments where we're going to learn a lot by watching in the Florida State League, the challenge games, how it looks, how it feels. Does it feel right? Does it feel f- like the best way to apply ABS? Or does it feel like something that's so antithetical to what we're used to in baseball that we just want to dismiss it and move on? But I think the fact that you could get a lot of the potential benefits of ABS without some of the drawbacks or concerns that that people have some of the unintended consequences of going to full automation make it a, certainly a worthwhile pursuit and we're really interested to see how that challenge system works this year wow you know i love this but i do have one worry and that is um bases loaded 
two outs, 3-2 pitch. Umpire rings up that hitter. Crowd mm-hmm. roars. Everybody's jumping up and down. <laughs> Wait. We have a challenge from the hitter. And now they roll back that strikeout, and it becomes a walk. I mean, this is one of the things that goes on with replay anyway, is it messes with our emotions. Um, is that a concern at all that you could have that kind of scenario? Yeah, that, that is a concern. I guess, I guess we already have that to a certain extent with replay, True. you know, when, it, when, it, when it, in a big spot, when a game ends on a safe out call and then, and then there's a review that's waiting around. So I don't <laughs> think that's anyone's favorite part of the game, but ultimately is, is it worth it to get a big call that impacts impacts the game at a critical moment, right? It probably is. I think the best uh, analog to a challenge system is what you see in tennis, where you know the, the player gets a, a limited number of, of challenges. Um, he himself or, or she herself um, are, are, are the ones making the decision and, and it happens re- really quickly on the court. And so, you know, look, I think uh, we'll, we'll learn a ton from watching how the, the challenge system uh, plays out on the field this year. And it's very, very unlikely that the rule was designed just right, you know, trying it out for the first time this year, maybe three challenges isn't the right number. Maybe it should be more, maybe, you shouldn't keep your challenge if you're right. Maybe you should lose it no matter what. I think the, the goal is to, to make it so that, you know, egregiously missed calls can be challenged and, and corrected. And that really high leverage calls that uh, that might have been wrong can be fixed. You don't you don't want a game where there's constant challenges that would that would disrupt everything we're trying to do with pace of game and, and create the proper rhythm for the game. So I'm sure we'll make adjustments along the way. And and but it, if if it meets favorable reviews, you know, maybe it's something that we'll experiment with and um, at a higher level in subsequent years. Theo, we could talk to you about this stuff all day long. There are literally 10 other rules I wanted to ask you about, but I know you got a sport to go fix. So thank you. <laughs> and uh, we'll see no. you back in Starkville next opening day, right? Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it. I just encourage everybody, um, you know, minor league baseball's uh, a wonderful experience. Take your family, go out and, and see your local team play. And, and this year, you know, I, there's even more reason with, with, with these rule experiments being rolled out um, throughout the minor leagues, you know, be really curious to see what, what fans think about, you know, watching the game with a pitch timer, what fans think about, you know, the uh, defensive positioning restrictions, uh, automatic balls and strikes, see, see how it looks and, and how it feels to you and see whether, you know, if you go back to a number of games, you get to a point where you don't even realize the rules in play and you're just focused on the players playing the game and enjoying, you know, the great aspects of the game. But I think, you know, not only are we, are we relying heavily on, on player feedback and not only are, are we relying heavily on data in this, in this rule change process, but fan feedback is, is as important as anything because ultimately all we're trying to do is create the very best version of baseball for our fans to enjoy. So head on out to the minor leagues and let us know, uh, let us know what you think about, about the rule changes and the style of play it creates. Well, if only there were an invention like social media that would allow fans to express their opinion. <laughs> Somebody should work on that. <laughs> it, exactly. But, you know, so, so, sometimes uh, sometimes you're, they tell you not to read the comment section. But I guess when it, when it, comes, when it comes to rule changes, we're taking any and all feedback. <laughs> okay. Keep that in mind, everybody out there. Theo, you're the best, yeah, man. Theo. Thank you Thank so you much for doing this. Thanks, guys. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, Doug, it is that time again. Time for listener trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. You know the routine. Every week, we ask for your favorite trivia questions, and we pick our favorite from some lucky listener. Then we invite that lucky listener to join us on the show and attempt to stump us with their question. We will tell you how you can do that in just a few minutes. Uh, Doug, just to recap, we've now missed two of these in a row, which means I guess we're back to our mid-season form. You know, we crushed the off-season, but um, we were the ones who got crushed during the actual season last year. So here's my quick question. Which is the real us? What do you think? Well, we're good at winter ball and spring training. Uh, I don't know what that means in major league level. I guess, you know, we, we win the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League. So we're, we're champions if you want to consider that. All right. I'm not sure you're right. <laughs> but the good news is we're about to find out. So let's welcome in this week's special trivia guest star. It is Mike Grant. Mike, it's great to have you here in Starkville. Why don't you tell us where you're from and what baseball team you care about most? All right, so I am a massive Red Sox fan. Uh, I am from Amherst, New Hampshire. Great. Uh, Mike, we loved your question, so here is your chance to do what so many have done before, to bamboozle us with baseball trivia. Uh, What is your question, my friend? All right, so who is the only pitcher who is the opening day starter for four World Series winning teams? Wow. Wow. Okay, just to be clear, uh, let me ask two follow-ups. First, this means they started the opener and then that team went on to win it that year, right? Correct. And it can be the same franchise. So, like, if the same starter for the 98, 99, 2000 Yankees, that's three. Okay, got it. Sorry, that was the second question. Don't need to ask that now. (laughs) All right, so who started the opener for four World Series winners and Doug, uh, this is hard, <laughs> but uh, let me just say, if it's somebody who did this 100 years ago, like in the 1920s, <laughs> we have no shot. No shot. But I, I have a feeling it's more recent than that. Um, just going through this at the top of my head, I have two names that came to mind. One, Catfish Hunter, uh, pitched for those Oakland teams that won three World Series in the early 70s, then free agency comes about he winds up on the Yankees teams in the mid to late 70s as they were winning two more World Series 
he's got a real chance to be the answer. But the other one I thought of was Whitey Ford. You know, the Yankees are always involved in these. Uh, the Yankees were in the World Series. It felt like pretty much every year when Whitey Ford was in his prime. So, again, off the top of my head, it just feels to me like it should be one of those two guys. But you know, you've thought this through. Who, who else came to mind? Yeah, well, Cap, I think Cap is a great answer. But um, well, I went. I thought about the period that he talked. You know, ninety nine, two thousand. You know, the Yankees. I don't know if any of those guys. You know, like a David Wells or an Andy I don't Pettit. Think so. I don't None of those think... guys. What about like a David Cohn? though? Because he, I mean, did he start? He, in eight, he didn't start eighty six Mets, did he? Because he he has that. Oh, no, he slept way later than that. He, well, he was a rookie, wasn't he? How, when did he first come up? Well, I, he I, came I, up I don't in know the. He, he, I, I mean, he did come up in the 80s, but he was yeah. not on the 86 Mets. Uh, he did bounce around Royals uh, when they were good. Yeah. But I don't think he was on that. That's too soon. Um, and none of those Yankees, like, rattled no. off, like, 96, all those? I don't you think know, so. None of those guys? Hmm. No, all right. I what do. about... Uh, what about Gibson? Somewhere Cardinals. They, they probably didn't win. They, 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 they didn't win three. four, yeah, right? They four, they, yeah. yeah, and he never changed teams, so I don't can't be him. Yeah, All right. I mean, I, I like. I don't know between. If, you know, I like your guesses. Catfish. I like. You know, the A's were dominant. Then he goes to New York. Now, did he start opening day for those teams? Yankees. Seventy-seven. <laughs> Catfish. I don't know. I, that's why. It, that's why it's trivia. We don't know. We have to guess these things. Mm, Whitey Ford, yeah. I mean, I literally just looked at the video of him pitching with Jackie Robinson stole home in the '55 series. Uh-huh. Now here's a here's a trick. I just want to throw this at you. If all right, here's a question: If a pitcher started the season on a team, then got traded, and then that team still won the World Series, that would qualify, right? That would qualify. Okay. That would qualify. All right. I yeah, figure that could to... be the. That could be the curveball in this. Not that I have an answer for that. You know, I thought like CC Sabathia or something. What, what, but, what are uh, you doing? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm stalling. What do you want to guess? I'll let you. I'll leave this up to you. Uh, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, well, Catfish, he's a fun answer. I, I'd stick with that. I, I uh, uh, yeah, Catfish uh, uh, Hunter. We we don't overthink it, so I like that. It, it's we've already that overthought little, it. Has a little trick in it, so I'll throw that in there. Yeah, all right. We've already overthought it, and again, if it's, <laughs> if it's like some red roughing kind of guy, oh, I feel good. I feel admit, good though. Yeah. All right, so let's just do this, yes. Mike. This is your chance to crush our dreams. Is there any chance the answer <laughs> is Catfish Hunter? That is a really good guess. It's wrong. So he did it three times, three times, Ooh. twice with the A's, was 77 Yankees. Nice. It wasn't someone like Orville overall for 708 The answer, Jack Morris for three different teams. Ooh, wow. Oh, my God. Jack Morris. I thought about 84 Tigers, nice. 91 Twins, 92 Blue Jays, and 93 Blue wow. Jays. Wow, he started he did both. 14 straight years, he was the opening day starter for a Ooh. team. Wow. Still a record. Yeah, wow. that, that, all right, so yeah, I almost I like guessed him, but I thought, I didn't remember him being on the 93 Blue Jays. Yeah, the Blue Jays, yeah. That's... He didn't make the postseason roster. That must be he got it. hurt at the end, but that's his last year. So his last three years in the league. He won all the World started, Series. Each one wow, World Series that's winner. crazy. That really is tremendous. Well... Uh, Doug, this, that, that was great. Uh, Doug, that this makes it. three in a row we've missed. Um, I'm 
starting to think our little hot streak was just one of those <laughs> off-season flukes. <laughs> We've had good answers. We've had very good answers. We've got like four out of five, this two is, out of three. This is so, one of the rare times that we didn't talk ourselves out of the right answer. We got Orville overall into this. <laughs> but the important yeah. part is we, we can now turn to the mayor of Starkville, Mayor Tim McMaster, for another one of his classic play-by-play audio clips, which will involve the answer to the question, Tim. What do you got for us this week? I think I know. It it almost involves the direct answer, but I think it's close enough. So Jack Morris, obviously, I thought you guys would get this, but I think I'm a little, um, I, he came to mind quickly for me because I worked with him for so long at MLB yeah. That, yeah. that I was like, oh, it's Jack Morris. <laughs> um, but I get that that's, that's kind of like for that reason. So anyway, we're going to go back to the early days for Jack. 1984 with the Tigers, not his opening day start, but four days later when he made history with the Tigers with a no-no. Tug of the cap by Morris, working up the set position now. He goes to his set, Chittle waits, here it comes. He struck him out and Morris has a no-hitter. Lance Parrish goes out and grabs him and the Tigers get a no-hit performance for the first time since 1958 when Jim Bunning did it. Jack Morris, the no-hit hero, surrounded by his teammates. Ernie Harwell on the call, and, um, you know, things were different with rotations back then. So Jack started the opener, and then he started game four yeah. with a couple off days in right. between there. Uh, is this two weeks in a row we've had Ernie Harwell clips? Yeah. Something like that, huh? Really good. Yeah, we're going good. had a nice run. Yeah, for sure. Well, Mike, you got us, man. <laughs> Excellent question. Good Way question, to go. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Strange but true. Doug, baseball is back, so our Strange But True segment is back. And that means I cannot let this segment slip by without talking about what went on in that Cardinals National Spring Training game last Wednesday. Now, the final score of that game, Cardinals 29, Nationals 8. 29 to 8. And you know how I always mention, Doug, that there are games that come along every year that the world seems to think are quote-unquote Jason Stark games? I mentioned this because this was one of those games. And it's the, the crazy thing is, during the season, I'm locked in on these games, but I'm, I was literally oblivious to the fact that this game was happening. Uh, two reasons. One, it was a Wednesday afternoon in spring training. Two, I was busy driving home from spring training at the time. So I'm like basically careening through Georgia while all this is going on. But once I stopped driving, I, I realized I've been bombarded by tweets from people who need me to weigh in on this thing. So I did throw one quick tweet out there, but we're going to weigh in right now. Ready to do that? Okay. First thing about this game, the Cardinals scored 15 runs in one inning. 15 in the eighth inning. 15! And uh, the impression I got was people seem to believe you don't see that much. And why is that? Because you don't see that much. <laughs> During the regular season, there have only been three times since 1900 a team scored that many runs in an inning. Uh, 
I guess I'll run through them. Uh, 1953, Red Sox scored 17 in an inning against the Tigers. Um, April 19th, 1996, really famous game. This was the Rangers-Orioles 26-7 game. Uh, the Manny Alexander game. Rangers scored 16 in an inning in that game. And then May 21st, 1952, the Dodgers scored 15 runs in the first inning <laughs> against the Reds. So that's the only time in the regular season any National League team has scored 15 in an inning, and then it happened in this spring training game. Now here's the second part. This is a related development. The Nationals did something you almost never see in a regular season game. They had two different pitchers give up at least 10 runs in the same game. Uh, one was Annabelle Sanchez, who once threw a one-hitter against the, the uh, when he was with the Nationals, one-hitter against the Cardinals in a playoff game. Uh, but in this game, he started, gave up 12 hits and 10 runs in four innings. Uh, the other was, uh, later in this game, the Nationals' number one pitching prospect, Cade Cavalli. He came in. They were trying to lengthen him out a little bit, supposed to pitch the sixth, seventh, and the eighth. He never did make it through the eighth inning. Why was that? Because he gave up 11 runs, uh, nine of them just in that inning. And uh, like for some reason, they made him wear it in a spring training game. He got his work in, but not that, not the kind of work they had in mind. So, all right, here's the question that people seem to need answered from me. When was the last time that happened in a regular season game, two different pitchers giving up at least 10 runs in a game? Okay, I'll tell you when. It was June 11th, 1985, Mets in Philadelphia, uh, in my town, Philadelphia, we know it as the Von Hayes game. You know why we call it the Von Hayes game? Let's hear exactly why. There's a ball hit in the air well to right field. It is out of here. Von Hayes, who was one for 22, has just let off with a home run. Here's another shot. Where's this going to wind up? Right on out of here. A grand slam. Home run, his second homer of the inning. First player in history to hit a solo homer and a grand slam homer in the first inning. Uh, that was the that's why it became the Von Hayes game. But that's not what we're here to answer. Uh, this was a game where two Mets gave up double digit runs, and how about this? Neither one of them started the game. Calvin Giraldi did it in relief, and then Joe Sambito came in, and he did it in relief, and he reminds me about this all the time, because I remind him about it all the time. And so I remember that game because I was there. Uh, Doug, I, I think you remember that one too, right? Because it was the height of your Phillies fandom? Oh, yeah. This is 85, and uh, I mean, I, I was watching the game and in and, and great joy. So, um, yes, the, the Phillies, I mean, they, I love Von Hayes, too. I, I actually did an event with him a while back and always excited. They called him Slick. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, he had a great eye. I remember he was traded for like 35 players at Cleveland. So, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was a legend. But 
uh, Vaughn, yeah, he was a good player, a really good player. He had a good eye. He could hit for average, you know, good athlete. So, yeah, I, and, you know, he loved those players that day. It was, you know, Juan Samuel and Mike Schmidt, Bo Diaz. I mean, these are these are classic Phillies from the 80s. A little bit on the side where they were, you know, getting away from that run they had early 80s, but they were they were still a lot of fun to watch. <laughs> uh, yeah, if this was if that game were played today, like six position players would have pitched for the Mets. <laughs> but luckily, uh, back in that day, two really good relievers uh, had to give up ten, and we appreciate that they did because they allowed us to drag them into this strange but true segment all these years later. So. Joe Sambito, Calvin Chiraldi, thank you for your service. And Jay, I want to give you a couple of quick quotes. Uh, Look this up here. So Gary Thorne Thorne and Bob Murphy were on the call. Bob Murphy said, if this were a prize fight, they'd stop it. And then Gary Thorne Thorne said, the turning point of this game was the national anthem. (laughs) So uh, they were 15 for 25 runners and scorers in that Cardinal game. Oh, I loved it. So, um, and and Hayes had been slumping. So, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Yeah, Von Hayes. He was uh, he was Mister Five for one because he got traded for five, and then he drove in five in the first inning. Very nice. Okay, that's gonna do it for this week's show. We'll be bringing you podcast magic just like this all season long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety, absolutely free. Everywhere you get your podcasts. Plus, we'll have bonus content every week for subscribers of The Athletic and The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple. Breaking down our weekly power rankings. Don't miss that. But that's not all. If you'd like to read the incredible writing in The Athletic, we can also help with that. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And if you're a new subscriber... You can subscribe for just $1 a month for the next six months. And this is an especially great week to do that. You know why? Because it is season preview week here at The Athletic. We'll have Ken Rosenthal's season preview on Wednesday, uh, the eagerly awaited Hope Meter on Thursday, and previews of all 30 teams all week long. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. Every show, we pick the most fun listener trivia question of the week, and then that listener gets to join us right here and prove, once again, there is almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. To do that, you can email us your question at starkville at theathletic.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter. To find Doug Glanville, you just spell his name at D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. You don't have to spell my whole name. I'm at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. So that's Jason with a Y, S-T. Remember, hashtag those questions, hashtag Starkville QS. So Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Theo Epstein for joining us. Thanks to Mike Grant for the fun trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Wednesday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's the debut of our new roundtable with Andy McCullough, Grant Brisby, and other special mystery guests. Meanwhile, Doug and I will see you next Tuesday on Starkville.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.